So I want us to rewind a little bit here to start off, to go back to around 750 BC. And if you go back to that era, you'd find that the northern tribes of Israel, remember it was a divided kingdom, the northern tribes by this point in history have already fallen. The Assyrians have come and conquered uh, the northern tribes. Now Judah remains intact, uh, but as we've seen in Kevin's study of Hosea, they're right on the brink of going down the same path that their brothers to the north have already traveled. And now it's only a matter of time before they teeter and fall because they've forsaken the Lord and they've followed after the nations and the idolatry around them. And it was at this time, if you remember, God sent prophets, not just one and not two, but a, a number of prophets that he sent. And he was very active, sending them messages he never abandoned his people during this time. Despite their unfaithfulness, he remained faithful. And that's an awesome thing to remember. And it was at one particular prophet that I want to look at had a very unique and awesome calling uh, that started out with an absolutely incredible vision. It is a vision that many a theologian has studied in the seminaries and even after post-seminary and graduate work. They, they will study this vision and this calling because it is just so incredible. Because in it, we find a glimpse of our God. Uh, and whenever, you get, whenever someone has that kind of glimpse or image, it's well worth to go back and say, what in the world can we see here and, and glean from this? Uh, and so it's gone down and in the annals of biblical record is one of the greatest visions that we see in the Old Testament and because of the fact that you get to see God on his throne. And it's a vision that if we were the ones that got to see it, it would be both awesome, incredibly awesome, but yet also quite terrifying in reality. In Isaiah 6, 1, it says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of armies. Isaiah sees into the very throne room of God and he sees the Lord there exalted and lofty. And then he sees these awesome creatures, these special beings that have been created by the Lord, the seraphim, positioned above the Lord God for the purpose of making a proclamation Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh in Hebrew. Holy, 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 he hears, is the Lord of armies. And then the other one calls out, the whole earth is full of his glory. One commentator says this Kadosh God is the separate one, beyond or above the world, true and absolute light, spotless purity, the perfect one. This is what Isaiah beheld. And then if we were to fast forward some 845 years later, we find another man. A man who had another incredible, incredible vision. This time it was a man who had walked and talked with Jesus Christ. A man who was there on the day that Jesus died on the cross. A man who got to witness the resurrected Christ. And he got to witness Jesus' ascent into the heavens. 
He was there when the Spirit came at the day of Pentecost. He saw the birth of the church. He saw God opening doors to the Gentiles. And then one by one, he saw his fellow apostles persecuted and killed until he alone was the last of the original 12. As he had this vision in Revelation 4-2, immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire before, burning before the Lord, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them also having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now we have John 2 getting this incredible view of God on his throne. And like Isaiah before him, he also sees these incredible beings that are set apart to make a proclamation and announce it day in, day out, night in, night out. Hagios, Hagios, Hagios. That's the Greek word for holy here. The Lord God, the Almighty, who was. That means he's forever existed in times past. Who is, that means he exists now, right now today. And who is to come. The one who will exist for all time, future, and forever. He has never had a time. There has never been a time when he has not existed. If that doesn't cause you to blow a fuse, if you just stop and think about that one reality, then you need to stop and think about it. Because it will cause you to blow a fuse. Say, wow, everything you've ever known from the day you were born until the day you sit right here is that things come and then they go. You, a person comes and then they're gone, it seems. And so things come and go and there's always a beginning and an end, but not with God. And that was the proclamation that John heard. Now, God, we know, has many awesome, awesome attributes, right? If you had to say, what are the attributes of God? You would have all kinds of things that you could list, right? Awesome things. And if one were to ask you, what is the most commonly mentioned attribute of God in the Bible? Think about what might you say to that? What might you say if someone said, what's the most commonly mentioned attribute of God? In all the scriptures. Yeah, well, I sort of gave it away with the whole title of the sermon. <laughs> but but if, if you weren't sitting here and I hadn't done this whole intro, you probably would come up with a lot of other answers, right? You'd say, well, he's, he's just. Yes, he is, but it's not the most commonly. It's, he's long-suffering. Amen, he's long-suffering. Not the most commonly mentioned. He is, uh, let's say, omnipotent. Yes, but not the most mentioned. Omniscient. Yes, but not the most mentioned. Uh, merciful, yes, but not the most many. Okay, then you get to the big one, of course. He's, God is love. His loving kind, amen. Yes, and that is mentioned a ton of times. I'm not, I don't mean to diminish any of his attributes. But there is one attribute that he mentions more than any other. And there's only one attribute that he decides to repeat three times in two different visions. In both the Old Testament and the New. In the heart of the Old and at the end of the New. And that is, he is holy, he is holy, and he is holy. 
all the other attributes of God align perfectly with his holiness. And if God takes the time to repeat it three times in that sentence, and then he repeats the whole phrase again, and then the seraphim say it again, and the seraphim say it again, day in, day out. You would think, if you were there, like, couldn't we get these guys to stop saying this over and over? No, you can't. God's trying to communicate something to you, to me, to Isaiah, the calling that he's about to go on as a prophet, and to John there in Revelation. And we would do well to pay attention. So what does it mean that God is holy? What is holiness? How does his holiness impact us as people of God? And how does his holiness impact the broader world of mankind? Do we understand the magnitude of what we're talking about when we talk about coming face to face with the holy, holy, holy God? This is what I want to dive into today. And let me ask another question here to start out. And this one, I'll let you throw out some more answers. Um, if someone came to you and said, I, I want to study holiness, or maybe you see yourself, you say, I, I want to study holiness. I want to know what it means to be holy. What book of the Bible might you turn to? There's no wrong answer here. The holiness is a thread through the whole Bible. You can find it in a lot of places. So I'm not, I'm not going to say there's, any wrong, there's no wrong answer. But what book might you choose to go to? Just throw out a, any book. So that came up in first service as well. Awesome book. A lot of great statements about God, his throne, his holy throne, established in righteousness. Good book. Any other books you might turn to? Isaiah. Yeah, I, would, I agree. You look at the, what we just read. You think, well, Isaiah definitely would be a good one to go to. Any other books you might go to? Any New Testament books? Deuteronomy. And what about a New Testament book? Philippians. Philippians, yeah. Maybe you might even go to Revelation. You might go to Hebrews. And it deals a lot with the priesthood and holiness. A lot of awesome books, right? Now, I'm gonna put, we're going to geek out just for just a second. Here, just a second. Just bear with me here. I'm going to put before you a plot of a, of, in the Bible, of every book in the Bible, and the occurrence of the word holy in the New American Standard Bible, which is meant to be a, a very literal and, uh, translation, you'll see here there's one book that probably would not have been your first choice. And I would agree, it probably wouldn't have been my first choice either. You just say, well, would Leviticus be the book that I would go to? Look, it's 90 times you find the word holy mentioned. Only five other books even get halfway to as many occurrences as Leviticus. And yet I'm also going to now read to you a common sentiment that we find, that I, that I happen to find on an internet message board. We find, I found this, but I think it's common to us. This person says, I'm trying to read the Bible from beginning to end, and I reached Leviticus. Should I just skip this? <laughs> I, I, have used, I have used willpower to get through chapters 1 through 14, but the fine details of sacrifice and dealing with lepers and et cetera, et cetera, seems to be on the surface irrelevant to my modern life. I don't just want to cherry pick the parts of the Bible to read and what makes me feel good. And I do want to get a sense of it as a whole unified message, but I have always given up when I reach these dense historically alienating parts, parentheses, like Leviticus. <laughs> now, I liked one of the comments, one of the further comments said, just wait till you get to numbers. <laughs> but nonetheless, this, I feel, is a common sentiment among folks that dive into the Bible, right? Me included. You get in there, and you start reading it, and you're like, wow, does it just go on and on and on? And you're like, what is this? What, what is this about? Now, I don't want us, I'm not trying to condemn anybody or make you feel bad for deciding you, you wanted to skip through sections of Leviticus. I get it. I totally get the struggle. 
I think the reason why we many times decide to skip Leviticus is because it's filled with regulation after regulation, stipulation after stipulation that seem to be unimportant to us, right? They seem to be unimportant to us, especially for us, because we're not under the law, we're under grace, right? So we look at that and we say, this can't be of, of much use uh, for us. And we find all these stipulations. I've put, it, put some of them up here on the, up on the screen. I mean, these are the, some of the things that would, you know, you'd be guilty if you're called to witness and you don't tell the truth concerning what you've seen. You're guilty if you touch the carcass of an unclean animal, if you sin against one of the Lord's holy things, if you swear or make an oath just thoughtlessly. You just carelessly made an oath one day or made a promise to somebody. If you find something that was lost and then you're just not completely truthful about it. If you eat a land animal that does not chew cud and have a divided hoof. If you eat an animal that has pads for on its feet. If you eat a water animal that does not have scales and fins, got a problem. If you eat a bird of prey, you got a problem. If you wear a garment... Get this, if you wear a garment with two types of material, you got a problem there. If you round the side growths of your hair on your head or shave the edges of your beard in the wrong way, you got problems. And the list goes on and on when you get in there, right? This is why we many times skip a lot of this, right? And then you have the priests and all the offerings. I wonder, I wonder what book of the Bible has the most mentions of offerings and sacrifices. 273 times. If I put that plot up there, I looked at it this morning, I was like, wow, that's, it's off the charts as well. 273 times the mention of offering, wave offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, burnt offerings, and all the stipulations of how they were to do this. And recall that a priest's very job was to go before God and represent the people, right? Here's God. Here's the people of Israel. And I have to stand in the middle and present something to him and represent them before him. And because there were so many violations of all these stipulations, they had to go present these offerings every day. Leviticus says, keep that fire going every day on that altar and keep giving me these sacrifices to pay, you know, and show forth these sin offerings and guilt offerings. And they had to follow a precise, detailed procedure on how to do the offerings. And then you also may recall the very construction of the tabernacle. All the details there. And you remember there was a holy place, then a big thick veil separating the most holy place that only once a year the high priest could enter and pour blood onto the mercy seat on top of the ark. And when we read sections like this, and we put it all, and we're trying to look at all this, it, I see how it's easy to ignore or skip over or say this is completely irrelevant to life in 2021. But we also could say to ourselves, but hold on a minute. If God so moved in his spirit for someone to record all these details, he's got to have a purpose. Perhaps I should read carefully and consider why. Ask the, just the simple question, why is God doing this? Why does God care about how a guy shaves his beard? Why would God care about the materials of the clothing and what they should or shouldn't eat and how the priests do this or that? Why does he care? And herein, when we ask those questions and we look at something like Leviticus is where I believe we begin to learn something about the concept of holiness. Because God, God did not give them these words of Leviticus without purpose. I've, I was, I've been raised to believe, and I firmly do, that God does nothing without a purpose and a plan and a meaning he did not give them this without a purpose. And he did not give them these words without even informing them as to why he was doing it. He says in Leviticus on several occasions that I'm giving you these stipulations. Why? 1147. To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean. And between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. 
And again in Leviticus 10.10, I've given you these stipulations to make a distinction, get this now, between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean. First thing to see when you look at Leviticus and say, what is this holiness thing? Holiness fundamentally involves distinction and separation between unclean and the clean. By the way, I'll throw this chart up here. What book of the Bible do you think has the most mentions of unclean and clean? Well, again, Leviticus just shoots off the charts as the book with all kinds of mentions. I mean, it's way beyond the others. I mean, look at this chart. I mean, we're, we're like 115 references to unclean and 40 some odd references to clean. Nothing even comes close. The whole book is holy, holy, holy. Unclean and the clean. Unclean and the clean. The holy and the profane. The holy and the profane. That's what it's over and over as you read it. To make the distinction. Holiness is complete separateness from all that is unclean. The absolute perfection and purity. And do you remember how Isaiah responded when he saw that vision that I read to you as we started? He saw God. He saw holy, holy, holy God. Remember what he says? Woe is me for I am unclean. Immediately, I, I'm unclean. It immediately exposes a reality. Have you ever rented or used or perhaps own a power wash? Or sorry, a power washer. You ever taken one out and you look at your deck and you think, or maybe your 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 driveway concrete or whatever? It's not too bad, but I think it's time to go ahead and give it a cleaning. And then you start shooting that power washer, and you begin to see this very delineated line as you're as you're moving the 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 the, the water, right? And all of a sudden, you're like, "Are you kidding me?" It was that disgusting before? It, because you, you'd lived with it for maybe five or six years that way. Maybe longer. And then all of a sudden you're like, you, like I did this on my deck once. And I remember doing it. It was like, it looked like new wood here. And it looked gross. I mean, it was just nasty. And you're like, that is completely gross. And so there's this stark line between this clean area and this dirty Area, and that's sort of what we have this view of God's holiness. And Isaiah says, I'm unclean. When I, got, when I got to see that level of perfection and purity, it made, it made it very clear that Isaiah had a problem. Leviticus 20, 24 continues on and says, gives more reasons why he's giving them all these stipulations. He says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean. And between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me for I the Lord am holy. And I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now these verses give us further clarification why he's prescribing all these distinctions and giving them these calls for holiness. One, he says that they should be holy because he has separated them from the peoples around them. He said, I've, I've pulled you out and made you a distinct, unique people. Two, he says they should be holy because he is holy. And if I'm your God and you're my people, you too shall be holy. And number three, they should be holy because he has set them apart as his own possession. Meaning you're mine. That's why you should be holy. He's calling his people to be like him. To be pure, separate, distinctly set apart from the unclean, the spotless, and those, those that are in trying, we need to try to live and walk without reproach. Now, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer, and uh, we design and build products. I'm a product design engineering. And when we design products, usually early on in the design phase, 
we have a lot of meetings at the very front end and you'll meet with the product manager and you'll meet with people that are strategists and trying to figure things out. And one of the big early questions is, what is gonna be the key differentiator or differentiators for this product? Because we've gotta have something that's gonna move the customer to choose our product versus company B's product, right? And you gotta have that. You, you, usually we have talked about, well, what technologies could we use? What could we, could we have a, uh, perhaps we can have a performance advantage. That, that'll be our differentiator. We'll be, we'll be higher performance. Maybe it's an aesthetic thing. We're gonna have better industrial designs. It'll look better. The car will look better than, the, than our co competitors. Maybe we'll make it more reliable. Maybe reliability will be our differentiator. We'll put all kinds of engineering hours into maximum testing to make sure it's just bulletproof reliability. And that, that's what'll get people to buy our product. Maybe it doesn't have a whole lot to do with engineering, but it's more of a strategy around value adds like warranty. I know how to get you to buy my, I'll just offer you a 100,000 mile warranty. That's how I'll get you to, you know, to differentiate my product from company B's. Well, for God and his people, one of the key differentiators is a call to holiness, right? There are other calls for us to love others, no doubt about it. That is another key differentiator, but I want to look today. A key differentiator is a call to absolute holiness. You might pause though and say, well, how serious is God about this holiness stuff? You know, I see a lot about it. Joel's made a decent case with the numerics, but how serious is he really about this stuff? Well, Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. The very foundations that he sits on are holy. Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne, this holy throne. And if we were to pause for just a second and say, well, if I'm asked the question how serious God is about holiness, let's rewind and consider a few stories. What happened at the burning bush? In Exodus 3, do you remember Moses sees this bush? It's burning, but it's not consumed, right? And he hears a voice. And the voice says to him, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why not come near, Moses? Because there's an absolutely holy God and you don't just haphazardly just go walking up to that God. What about Aaron in the holy place of the Holy of Holies? Leviticus 16.2, the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. You'd say, well, why not Come into that holy place, Aaron, just when you want. He gives an answer. Because I will be there. The holy God will be there. And again, you don't just haphazardly walk before a holy God. Does anybody remember the story of Nadab and Abihu? Remember, Aaron had several sons. And one day we find this story in Leviticus 10.1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron... Levitical descendants took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. Strange meaning alienated or foreign fire before the Lord. And here's why it was foreign. Because he had not commanded them to do it the way they had done it. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Why? Why so serious here? Well, Moses gives an answer in the next verse. Moses turns to his brother as he just sees his nephews struck down. And he says, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Now that would be an, a hard thing to watch, to see your sons just struck down. He says, is God serious about how you approach him and his holiness? 
You bet he is. And we read this story there. We read that whole chapter here this past week. And I stopped and I said to the kids at the end, I said, what do you make of this? What do you think about this? This is the same God today as he was then. It says he doesn't change. The same God that struck down Nadab and Abihu still sits on his throne today. The same attributes. It was sort of silent there. The kids sort of thinking. And then Brandon just sort of piped up and said, Dad, God's a stickler for the details. <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah, you know, that's right. He is a stickler for details. You know, as, we, as I engineer things, we'll engineer, we'll spend years sometimes designing a product. Sometimes we'll budget two years, two and a half, three years. All kinds of prototypes moving all over the world, parts coming from Asia, we're sending things around. And you get in there and you have all these drawings and documents and schematics and all this stuff and simulations and models and, and all these things you build, prototype after prototype. Eventually it comes time to check out the details because you got to do a, what we would call a detailed design review. Before you ever launch a mass production run, better review the design. And you better call in what we do. We, it's all hands on deck. It's all eyes on deck. Every engineer that we can get that's available, we call them into the office. Or call, have them call in from out, you know, afar. We set aside usually a whole day. Sometimes it's two days. We'll provide lunch. We take every, every drawing, every simulation, everything we've calculated, everything we've looked at, and we put it out there. And hopefully we've got other engineers that haven't been involved through the whole thing. So they've got a new, fresh set of eyes. And we do that we, because we care about the details, right? We have a guy will look at me and say, Joel, you forgot to put a pull-up resistor right here. I see that there's a, a floating input on this one integrated circuit. That could cause the thing to oscillate and maybe blow up. You might want to consider fixing that. I don't understand this certain note here about this certain luminance effect. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, you, you, you pour through the details after details. And why do we do that? So we don't have errors. We try to eliminate errors, right? We're looking to try to get those things out of there so that when we go into production, the thing will work. And what I love when I look at God's creation and his ability is he never makes errors. He's, his attention to detail is incredible. His design is still going outside our doors that he called into existence thousands and thousands of years ago. Name that for any of man's creations. How many of your creations, you go out and spend 50 grand on some new car and you know, there's BMW, the, the best engineering in the world. It'll one day end up in a salvage yard somewhere, rusting with the engine blown up or head gasket ruined. And you'll say, it's gone. I'm on to another one. You'll hold up your iPhone. Oh, this is the greatest invention of man. We've had engineer after engineer has poured through it. And, and we've, over the years, we've just improved and improved. And it's great. It'll never, never fail. And you're like, well, guess what? It will fail. And it too will end up in the ash heaps of all kinds of electronic junk and all the things that we try to restrict, hazardous substances and leads and all these things. Don't get me started. But anyway, that's what happens. Man's inventions will fail, but God's never, never will. Because he's perfect, perfect, perfect. Why did Moses not get to go into the land? Do you remember that story? This is actually the story why I did this whole message. We were reading this like three months ago. The Lord said to Moses, number 20, Numbers 20, 12, Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. You get this? This is Moses, the friend of God. The one, the meek Moses that's walked with God, spoke for the Lord, led the people, and he says, you don't get to lead him into the land. He brought him up. He let him look out. He got to the top of Mount Nebo. He got to see the land. But he didn't get to go in. He said, because you didn't treat me as holy. One time. One time when I said, speak to the rock and make water come out, you chose to strike the rock. You don't get to go into the land. You didn't treat me as holy. You didn't believe me. And treat me as holy. 
Seems insignificant to us that you make one mistake. Couldn't you let him go in? Don't get to go in. What about Uzzah? Do you remember Uzzah when he reached out to steady the ark? Remember that story? In 2 Samuel 6, David has conquered Jerusalem. He's bringing the ark in. They're bringing it in on, this, on a cart. That was their first mistake. And then they don't have the Levites around. And then this guy, Uzzah, here comes the ark. It's starting to fall. And Uzzah reaches out to steady this gold, shiny ark. And boom, he's struck dead right there. You say, why? God said, because you didn't honor me. And you, and, you, and you just struck him down. You'd say, is God serious about this? What about Eli's son? Remember the, remember the high priest Eli at the beginning of 1 Samuel? His sons Hophni and Phinehas? They had said, this, this hopefully isn't good wording here for anybody ever, but it says they were worthless, it says, in 2 Samuel, sorry, 1 Samuel 2. To have that be recorded of you and say, well, Why? Because they spurned the Lord's offerings and they took the fat of the Lord and they ate it because they wanted it. Even though Leviticus made it very clear, all fat is the Lord's. And any priest that takes of that shall be cut off from the people. Is God serious about this holiness stuff? You bet he is. You'd say, why so serious? Because this is who he is. He is absolutely separate, absolutely pure, absolutely clean, absolutely perfect in his character. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. And he absolutely abhors all sin. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Job 34.12 he says, surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And I love him for that, that he will never pervert justice. And then Psalm 5, 4, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And we would love to change Psalm 5. To say, no, 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 no. He doesn't hate the man who sheds bloodshed. Or he doesn't hate all that do iniquity. He hates the bloodshed. He hates the iniquity. But I'm not going to change Psalm 5 just to make you feel good about it. The reality is God hates and abhors sin and the one that follows down the road of sinfulness. Now you fast forward to Jesus' day. And let's listen in to his first major lesson. The Sermon on the Mount. You'd say, surely God will relax concerning all this holiness stuff. Surely he will relax concerning the righteousness. But then we read this. Jesus in 519 of Matthew. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, speaking about the law, and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he proceeds to take the law, and go through it and correct and raise the bar one after the other, like this in this next verse, 521. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And then he goes and it's more of the law. And then he finally gets to his first major therefore. Therefore, in light of everything I've just been teaching you, Jesus says in 548 of Matthew, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
Now, I hope you're saying, hold on a second. Time out a second here. This is getting, this is getting really pretty heavy. You're telling me I got to keep all the commands. I can't annul even one of them. You're also telling me that if I, I have to have righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, my righteousness has got to be like perfect. And then you come along and you say, and I have to be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect? I think there's a reason why he said these things. Same reason why Paul opened Romans with the first three chapters that he did. It's that so any person that's listening says, Houston, we got a problem here. We got a major problem. A problem that going to church, simply checking off the, oh yeah, I went to church. It's not going to solve this problem. Just having a guy, guy just sprinkle some water on your head, not going to solve this problem. Thinking that I'm just going to work my way back out of this. No, 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 no works are going to work you out of this problem. How would you ever meet these demands? And you'd say, did Jesus relax on the holiness of God? Not at all. Jesus didn't come to remove or change God's holiness. He came because of God's holiness. I'll say that again. Jesus did not come to remove or change God's holiness. He came because of God the Father's holy demands. You see, God in his holiness is totally set apart from all that is unclean, profane, or blemished. God's very character is founded on this reality. We, on the other hand, in our natural state, are unclean, unrighteous, profane, sinful, unjust, deceitful, unholy. And as Romans 3, 4 says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. So how did somehow we went from Exodus 3 saying, don't get near me, Mount Sinai, don't let anyone get close to this mountain or touch it lest you die. Don't ever go into that holy of holies without going the right way according to my, otherwise you die. Don't ever touch and approach my ark haphazardly, otherwise you die. How did we go from that to draw near to me and I will draw near to you in James 4? How do we go to what we find in Hebrews? Therefore, he says, draw near to the throne of grace. What has happened that a holy God can remain holy and yet somehow allow, allow you and I to traffic right into his presence and be right there with him? How would we ever get to be able to do that in, in light of the perfection that Jesus just said is demanded? There's only one solution to this problem. And that is, he sent his own spotless son, who was without blame, without blemish, completely holy. And he did so to, number one, appease his demand for justice that's founded in his holiness. That every sin demands a payment. That's number one. And number two, he did something else incredibly awesome by imputing or crediting his son's righteousness to us so that he could say when he looks at me, he does not see all the sin, but he sees on my account the righteousness of his son. We know this is the case because Paul in his great dissertation in Romans makes it very clear for all have sinned, he says in 3.23, and fallen short of the glory, glory of God. Being justified, that is the idea of being, having a just standing before God, as a gift by his grace through the redemption. That's a word that means to be paid, paid, paid for or purchased. Which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. An appeasement, that's a word, I never use propitiation outside of reading Romans 3. It's a word that means an appeasement. You'd say an appeasement for what? A holy 
and righteous and just God that demands something be done about the problem. So he became and was displayed publicly as a propitiation, an appeasement in his blood through faith. Now get this, this was to demonstrate something. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, his perfection, his purity, his holiness. Because guess what? In the forbearance of God, he passed over all those sins that had been previously committed, millenniums of sinful mankind piling up. And he shone forth and displayed publicly a righteous appeasement to that through his son. And then he goes on, he says, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness now at the present time, so that he, get this, would be just, so he satisfies his justice, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And a few verses later, Paul hits it out of the park with this one in Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but simply believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, that belief is now credited to him as righteousness. Credited like a financial term of an account on the books of accounting to our account. Now, now we can draw near because of this incredible work, this incredible equation that Paul has given us through Christ that he just detailed. Have you ever had to appear before a judge? Have you ever had to maybe appear at a deposition? I had to do that once. Yeah, we've got, I, you got folks that are attorneys out here. Have you ever had to have maybe a panel interview where you're sitting down, you're sort of in the hot seat, they're going to blast you with all kinds of questions and maybe throw a math equation at you, see if you got that figured out. Anyway, you get to those situations. I sat in a deposition once, and I'll tell you, it was scary. Every word you say, everything you, that you that even the way you convey yourself, it, it's scary, right? Do you know that at the end of the age, it says, books, plural, will be open when God sits on his great white throne. What will happen when the Lord looks at me in my natural state, looks over here at the book, says, I have against you, Mr. Joel Allen Butler, 5,682 violations of section 4, subclause 32. I have 3,458 violations of section 12, subclause 18, part A, and I know what you thought on that one day. And I, know, and I got that. Remember that impure thought? I got that one. And you remember what you did that time when you, you were rude to that guy? You remember that time you said that? Thing? It would go on and on and on. And you would have no leg to stand on whatsoever. Even with just one accusation. Let alone the thousands that he could, could bring forth. But praise be to God that there's another book that will be opened. And that is the Lamb's book of life. And everyone whose name is written in that book as a result of the equation that Paul just outlined by believing in Jesus, the propitiation and the righteous atonement for our sins, those individuals' names are recorded there. And instead of listing off all those subclauses, he'll say, this one's mine. Joel Allen Butler is mine. He actually has a new name for me, it says in Revelation. And he'll welcome, him, welcome me in. And he'll say, this one's mine. And, his, and don't look at my righteousness has been transferred to him. That is for those that believe. So does this mean we're off the hook for holiness then? We're no longer called. That's all in Old Testament. That's all Leviticus and Jesus dealt with it. He clearly in Matthew 5 established the problem. And then he became the solution. Amen. We're off the hook then. No more holiness required for God's people. Not so fast, right? May it never be. In fact, it should be the exact opposite. It should be that pursuing holiness via his indwelling spirit should become our very focus and motivation in life. First Thessalonians says in 4.7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. King James says holiness there, because that sanctification where it's Hagiosmos, 
which comes from hagios, which is the Greek word for holy, set apart, sacred, pure. 1 Peter 1.13, New Testament writing. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Catch the future tense there. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I wonder where Peter got this verse. Could it not be from Leviticus itself? That's where it's from. The motivation to be holy because he is holy is not just an Old Testament teaching. It's the very foundation here for Peter's writing to us. So I ask you, are you desiring and pursuing holiness because your God is absolutely holy? Are you here today because you really are pursuing holiness or are you just checking off a box? What is your motivation by living out a life for Christ as a disciple? Is it to learn and grow closer to the master each and every day? To be more like him each and every day? To be walk in holiness and purity closer and closer each and every day through his indwelling spirit? I hope it is. And just like we saw in Leviticus where he gave a reason, if you remember, you should be holy because you're mine, he said. Read 1 Peter just a few verses later, 2 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and get this, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are his possession, no different than Israel was and still is his possession. We too in the church are called his possession, a people of his own possession. Thus, we should be motivated to serve him in holiness. Now, we live in a time right now when God's holy name is not held in a lot of honor outside on our streets. In fact, Ezekiel 36 says that his name even today, right now, I believe, is being profaned amongst the nations as a result of things that Israel, his people, did and still continues to do. We live in a time where if I went out and I talked to my, all of the folks I'm touch base with in the world around me and I told them about regulations and righteousness and holiness and submitting to the will of a righteous, sovereign, and holy God, it would be looked upon as Foolish relics of past uncivilized cultures. They say, are you kidding me, Joel? With all, you, know, you got a degree and all these things. You're telling me you're, you're going to believe that hogwash? You're going to devote your life and give up these things for that? That's what they would say. We live in a time when we have watered down Christianity. Leaving aside certain sections of the scripture because they just don't fit our culture around us. And I'm not talking about just Leviticus now. I'm saying New Testament. Let's get rid of that, some of that stuff that I read over there in Romans. Let's get rid of some of that stuff I read in Timothy. Let's get rid of that. The end of 1 Corinthians 11, it just doesn't fit real well with what in our culture. A time when sound doctrine is becoming harder to find. Today, we're told by our culture, just blaze new roads. Be and do whatever you want to be. Even down to your own gender. You just choose it. Do whatever you want. But I believe a day will dawn when the Lord will make his presence known and the nations will tremble at the realization of the holy God they have so long turned their back against. And they will run to the rocks and they will hide and they will cry out as they see the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. And they will realize this stuff about holiness is serious 
And he does, he will come and he will mean business. Because Ezekiel 36, 23 says this, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned amongst the nations, which you, Israel, have profaned out there in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. They will witness this. We open with incredible visions from Isaiah and Revelation. And I, I want to close on this incredible vision that John saw again in 95 AD, give or take, on the island of Patmos, when God will take action. Then I saw Roman, or sorry, Revelation 15.1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last. Because in them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of, of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God in days past. They sang this song and the song of the Lamb. And they said, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have now been revealed and made known. That day, my friends, is coming on this earth. And the picture here is absolute praise when that day comes, when God acts in his holiness. In closing, I'll just close with this. Have you, have you ever knelt down to actually say a prayer? God, I'm God on your knees all the way down. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. And I'd also encourage you to think through in your mind's eye, back to those visions that we read at the beginning, that when you and I bow down at the throne of God, we are going right into that holy place as a result of the cross work of Christ in his great majesty and awesome glory and purity. And we are there and we're called to do so and to bow in reverence and to see him and to say, offer up our petitions, knowing that we have such an incredible access to an awesome and holy God. And may we never forget that God is holy, kadosh, 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 and always will be. And may that give us great peace as well to know that he will make all things right. At the end of the age. So Lord God. We thank you. For being our awesome creator. We thank you for all your attributes. We thank you for your long suffering. For your grace. For your mercy. We thank you that you are omnipotent. That you are omniscient. And that you are all with. You're with us wherever we go on this earth. There's no place. No thing that can ever separate us from you. And may we also remember your awesome love for us that you've demonstrated by sending your son. And Lord, may we hold you and your holiness and recognize, Lord, that you have painted a picture in your word that is clear, very clear. And this is why you wrote books like Leviticus to see you are distinct, you are different, you are holy. You are separate. You are pure. And you call us to be that way as well. Not by necessarily filling every law, but by walking out in your spirit. And then we will actually fulfill your law by walking in the spirit. And we will become more and more like you. And may we walk by that spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh and the sin that so easily entangles us and press on for that upward prize, Lord keeping our eyes fixed on you 
And as we bow, whether it's in our house or at our bed tonight, may we picture you on, our, on your throne and us as your servants, knowing that you've redeemed us. We are your people and you're pleased for us to draw near. What an awesome privilege that is. We thank you for that privilege in the only name that we can. Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. In his name we pray, amen.